friends, join me in prayer uh, to God the Father through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, as we ask for his help now as we look to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that it is through him and him alone that we can approach you in confidence. God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for Jesus and for your plan of redemption that you've accomplished through him. We thank you that we can boldly approach your throne. We thank you and praise you that you have called us now by your name and you hear us and you answer us when we pray. When we pray for ourselves now as we look to the Bible, we know that without your help, without your spirit coming now and empowering this time, we know that it will not be of any good for us. So we pray for me as the preacher of your word, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would use me as your instrument so that I might be helpful to these dear people. And we pray for all of us, Father, as we sit under your word, that you, by your spirit, will work in our hearts and in our minds, that you would be renewing us in our minds and that you would be changing our hearts and conforming us into the likeness of Jesus. Father, we admit that we struggle in various ways and that we can at times be hopeless, can feel that way anyhow. And we pray that you would use your word this morning to put rock under our feet and to put steel in our spine and to encourage and strengthen us and to give us hope that is unshakable. So we pray for that supernatural work to happen now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not a newsflash to you, friends, but we are quickly approaching the holiday season. It's happening, right, in the culture, in the marketplace, right? We see it everywhere, gearing up for Thanksgiving uh, this coming Thursday. And then right after that, really kind of already, but certainly right after Thanksgiving, we are immersed in the Christmas season. Well, my prayer and my desire for you this upcoming holiday season and all the time, frankly, is that you would have hope. That you would be filled with hope. Real hope. Not just some kind of naive hope where you just sort of deny reality. Not some sort of sentimental hope that is incredibly shallow. It might feel warm and fuzzy. But it has no real substance. It doesn't go very deep. Not some kind of trite and cliche thing. Where you know the phrases to say, the lines to give. Sounds good. But again, it's shallow. It doesn't have any rock, any foundation underneath it. That kind of hope, that naive, sentimental, trite, cliche stuff, does not hold up when you encounter heart-wrenching pain. It doesn't hold up when you encounter soul-crushing suffering. It doesn't hold up when that pain and that suffering is working to steal any joy that you have. When you encounter real pain and real evil and real hardship, friend, your hope needs to have an anchor that goes deeper than sentimentality. 
that goes deeper than cliches, that goes deeper than some kind of happy, clappy triumphalism. So the million-dollar question is this. Where is that real hope found? If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Psalm 62. And as our brother Ron so beautifully said last week, if you're having trouble, that is found immediately after Psalm 61 and before Psalm 63. He is a compassionate and gracious pastor. Before we go any further, friends, now that you've had a moment to flip, I want to read God's word for us. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that is okay. You can remedy that next week. We will put the words on the screen so that you can look at them and follow along. This is the word of God. To the choir master, according to Jedithan, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day, every Lord's Day too. Friends, what I want to do is take some time to give an overview of the psalm. Kind of fly over it, not at 30,000 feet, but not exactly on the ground either. Somewhere in between. And then after that, I want to consider three points just for our meditation that flow right out of the text. So this first piece, we will do a, an overview, a summary almost of the entire psalm. As you look at Psalm 62, it can be broken down into three stanzas, four verses each. That's pretty clear. You can see that in your text just like I can. What's interesting, too, is you look even at the two verse kind of pairs throughout. You have this structure where we start with God is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my fortress. He alone is that. And then this consideration of how people seek my harm. Back out to God alone is my rock, my fortress, my salvation. I wait for him. Let's all trust him. Let's all plead before him. He's a refuge for us. Then we consider how circumstances are fleeting and how riches can't be trusted. Then God is trustworthy. He's powerful. He is a God of steadfast love and he's a God of righteousness. So you can kind of see that pattern. 
Here's the truth about God and my rest in Him. People will harm me. I rest in God. Circumstances are fleeting. God is trustworthy. You can see that like I can in your text. I want to draw a little bit of attention. I don't want to overblow this, but I think it should be noted that in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, 5, and 6, in the original language, all of those verses would have started with the word essentially that is often rendered in our text, alone. So there's an emphasis in that. Alone for God, right? My soul waits. Alone He is my rock and my salvation. Verse 4, alone these wicked people seek to thrust me down. Verse 5, alone I wait for God. He alone is my rock and my salvation. That's an interesting refrain to be observed there. Just put your eyes really quickly on the heading. I want to do this for you, lest there be any questions. Might save a little bit of time at the door after the service, where you read to the choir master. Clearly, this was intended to be sung. And then according to Jedithan, or could be rendered to Jedithan, that name is a name that means one who gives praise. It would have been a name most appropriate for a leader of song. And this name occurs a number of times in the history books of the Old Testament. It was likely, just sort of conventional wisdom would say, it was likely a name that was passed down to descendants who filled this particular role of leading the congregation in song. So that's what we have there in the inspired heading. And we also see in the inspired heading that David, King David, is the author. We have thought a decent amount about David and his place in Scripture and his role there in recent weeks. So I leave that to you. Verses 1 and 2, again, we have this emphasis that God alone is my rock, my salvation, and my fortress. I wait on Him alone. You can put your eyes there on verse 1. David says that, For God alone my soul waits in silence. In God alone he hopes. That's clear. This is because, second part of verse 1, from God comes David's salvation. From God comes our salvation. Only God, you see verse 2, only God is my rock and my salvation and my fortress. And because of God, I will not be greatly shaken. It's not because of David's strength or fortitude. It's because of God that David is unshakable. Then in verses 3 and 4, again, we get to consider with David, the psalmist, how people are seeking to destroy him. But again, we can identify with that, with what David is writing. Of course, he is fulfilling a unique role as the anointed king of Israel. He had plenty of enemies, more enemies than we do in an earthly way. But we'll think more about this later, about how we know what it's like when people seek our harm. In these verses, David writes of people who attack a man, him, in the context, in order to ruin him, in order to batter him, to knock him down, to thrust him down from his high position, to knock him down a peg or two, and in particular to ruin him as the king of God's people in this unique role that he plays. We see in verse 4 that these wicked men who attack him take pleasure in falsehood. They are deceitful and manipulative. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And then in verses 5 through 8, we kind of zoom back out to look at God again. David, again, essentially repeating verse 1 and verse 5, tells us that God alone is who he waits for. This time, instead of saying my salvation comes from him, my hope is from him. So not only is my salvation from him, but my hope is from the Lord. 
Verse 6 is essentially a repeat of verse 2. Only God is David's rock and his salvation. He is my fortress, therefore I will not be shaken. David's salvation and glory we see in verse 7. Rest on God. My mighty rock, he says. God is David's refuge. And then verse 8. A very sweet verse as David moves from the first person talking about himself to then a word of exhortation to the congregation of Israel, to the people. He exhorts them, trust in Him, trust in God at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. This is because God is not just a refuge for me. He is a refuge for us. There's a sweetness about that us as the people of God. Then in verses 9 and 10, David, after having considered wicked people, he now considers earthly circumstances, money, standard of living kind of stuff. Where he says, whether you are wealthy or poor, essentially, that's of no eternal significance. You can put your eyes there. Those who are of low estate are but a breath. Your life is going to be over quickly, so don't fret about that. But also, those of high estate are a delusion. You're not really that big of a deal. If you were of high estate, you didn't create your wealth. So don't kid yourself. When poverty and wealth are weighed, you see this in the second half of verse nine. In the balances, they go up high estate, low estate. They are weighed in a balance, presumably on God's scale. You guys know how a balance works where the heavier object would go down and the lighter object would go up. The only way the balance is balanced is if the two objects are of the same weight. So when poverty and wealth, when high circumstance, low circumstance are weighed in a balance, they go up. That means that what they are weighed against is heavier. What they are weighed against is more substantial than your circumstances of whether you have much or little. Together, you see, they are together lighter than a breath. Poverty and riches considered together are lighter than a breath. And so, David says, verse 10, put no trust in extortion, unrighteous gain, just seeking to have more stuff. Set no vain hopes on robbery. Like, oh, well, let me just take things from other people so that I'll have more stuff and that's going to change my circumstance and that's going to fundamentally change my existence. David says, no, I don't trust in that. And then the last verse there, or line, excuse me, of verse 10. <clears throat> he tells us if riches increase, even if your lot improves, you make a lot of money, you acquire some nice things, don't set your heart on those things. Don't hope in, don't trust in, don't rejoice in your riches because they are a poor thing to hope in. They are a poor thing to set your heart on. And then as we zoom back out again in verse 11, David essentially tells us that God is trustworthy. He is the one to be trusted. He is the one to be hoped in. He is the one to rejoice in because to him power belongs. And to him steadfast love belongs. Once God has spoken twice, I've heard this figure of speech there. The emphasis is on the fact that God is a God of power and steadfast love. And then this last phrase is an interesting one. For the ground of that is that God is righteous. 
For you will render to a man according to his work. So God's power and God's steadfast love are grounded in and connected to the fact that he will render to a man according to his work. He's a righteous God. More on that in a moment. So now that we've done that essentially flyover of of the text and we have that structure in in mind, the, the text itself, friends, is pretty straightforward in terms of the message of it. So now what I want us to do is is to look at the three points that I have for our consideration as we try to steep ourselves deeper in the main themes of this passage. So point number one of three. We must not hope in people. We must not hope in people. Or you could even say we must not hope in relationships. So friends, even thinking about what David writes explicitly in verses 3 and 4, we know and have experienced, many of us in this life, the reality that some people will be malicious towards They will be wicked in their intentions toward us. Whether that's as a kid on the playground or whether that's something more grown up in the business world or whatever. We know what this is like. The maliciousness and the wickedness that exists, wickedness in our intentions toward other people, that exists in humanity because of sin. You know this. Those who are familiar with your Bibles will remember that immediately following Genesis 3 is Genesis 4. And in Genesis chapter 3, we learn of the fall of man and sin and how it entered into the world and the curse that came on humanity and the entirety of creation. And then immediately thereafter, the first children conceived on earth, Adam and Eve's children, two of their kids, brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother, has malicious intent, wicked intention towards his blood, towards his family. And ever since then, the story has been the same. That movie has played over and over and over again on loop as we have malicious intention toward one another. We encounter this at points, friends, where a person plots and schemes against us. Oftentimes it's because they want something and we are in the way of that. Think about how you have even done that in your life, if you're honest. How you have schemed and manipulated people because you wanted something and they're in the way. You see it maybe most obviously in small children, And you see it maybe obviously in the world in ways that many of us would say that we don't take part in. But we need to not kid ourselves in terms of the malicious intentions that exist in all of our hearts. This will look different. People being malicious towards us depending on our roles and our vocations. That only makes sense. David the psalmist would have known this very well as I've already said as the king of Israel. He regularly had people seeking his life. Seeking to destroy him. Seeking to harm him for all kinds of reasons. What might be more common for us in our day, just kind of normal, average, everyday people, is maybe not as much that people would seek my harm maliciously and like seek to kill me. But we experience this all the time, where people who, in a general way, would mean well towards us, nevertheless hurt us and harm us. And fail us. We do the same. Happens all the time. 
and it's painful. Think about your life. Let's just kind of pivot the table a little bit. Think about your life. Think about you and how you interact with other people, whoever that is. A friend, a coworker, your husband, your wife, your kids, whoever, parent. Any relationship would fit here. How often do you hurt someone that you genuinely care for? Pretty regularly. In a general, like, high-level, overarching way, you love that person. You, you want good for him or her. And yet, you find yourself, because you are a sinner, doing things that hurt other people. So how this typically goes, friends, is that in the moment you're frustrated, you're angry, you're discouraged about something. Maybe you're tired, you're stressed out, you're hungry, whatever. There's all kinds of things that happen. And then in that moment, you viscerally feel it welling up within you. Blood pressure's going up. Your temperature is rising. And you, in one sense, want to lash out. Now, that looks different for different people, that lashing out thing. With some people, it's explosive. With other people, it's much quieter, but just as wicked. The intent is to do some kind of harm in that moment. Even though at a high level, I care for you and I don't want to make your life worse. All of that that we're talking about, that real life stuff, is because of sin as well. It's because of the fact that there is this thing called indwelling sin, the presence of sin within us, that internal war that we wage, our spirit against sin, our spirit against our flesh. Because we are not yet fully sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ, we wound each other. Sin, friends, you have to own this. Sin infects and affects every single relationship that you have. Sin infects and affects every single relationship you have, that I have as well. By God's Spirit and by His grace in Christ and in the Gospel, we as the church have the means of reconciliation. So the beautiful thing about the Gospel and about what Christ has accomplished and about the Spirit of God working in us and the grace of God working in us is that when that wounding happens, when that sin happens, there's real confession There's real ownership of sin and there's real forgiveness extended. And at the same time, we will still be hurt. We will still suffer. We'll experience pain and heartache as a result of what other people, even meaning well, will do to us. And what we in turn, meaning well, will do to them. The point that we need to also own in this, like what's the takeaway, right, of all of that, is that other people in this fallen world can never deliver lasting peace or lasting contentment, ever. Other people in this fallen world can never deliver lasting peace or lasting contentment. Lasting peace and lasting contentment and real hope must be found elsewhere. Now, is God kind to us in the ways that he has set up the church? Yes. Is God good to us in the ways that he has ordained marriage and parenthood and friendship and all of these things? Yes, he is. 
Are we made relational beings? You better believe we are. Are we made to live in community? Absolutely. Do we need each other? Yes, we do. But we never hope in each other. That's the distinction that has to be made. We don't hope in any other fallen human being. Or we will be disappointed. Which brings us to our second point for our consideration this morning. The first one was that we must not hope in people. Point two is that we must not hope in circumstances. We must not hope in circumstances. In, by, I'm using circumstances as a more general term because I think it's more appropriate and it lends itself better to our meditation. Obviously, very specifically in the text, you have the kind of wealth versus poverty circumstance question. But it's appropriate that we would consider circumstances in a general way. Do not hope in those. You know this and I know this. Circumstances change regularly. It's been said, the only things that are certain in this life are death and taxes. There's a reason why that phrase has become idiomatic. Things don't become like legendary quotations for no reason. There's only, there are only things that are certain in this life are death and taxes. That phrase became famous and idiomatic like it has because it's true that things, circumstances change all the time, regularly. In this world, change is a constant. Things don't remain as they are, right? You know that, just like I do. There might be cycles, there might be patterns in some things in life, but nothing remains unchanged. There's always movement. There's always progression or regression, right? There's always evolving or devolving. It's always going on. Time doesn't stop. As the hymn writer says, time like an ever rolling stream bears all her sons away. It never stops. It keeps going. Because time always is passing, things are always changing. Time does not stand still. So if our circumstances change regularly, how in the world could we reasonably hope in them? It's a moving target. Yeah, like my circumstances might be good today, and that's great, and I'm excited about that, and I mean, be grateful, let me just very quickly. None of what I'm saying today about not hoping in circumstances or relationships means that you should just like jettison those things altogether. No. Invest in people. We need one another, as we've already considered a little bit. And even when you have a good day, when you have good circumstances, when you're having a good season, thank God. Don't invite suffering on yourself. That's craziness. Thank the Lord that He's been good to you and that things are going well. And at the same time, know that, okay, things are good today and they will change. So not only do circumstances change regularly, but circumstances also change rapidly. This is another reason why we can't hope in them. I would also add that not only do they change rapidly, they change unexpectedly. Right? There's always that thing that happens that you didn't foresee. You never would have foreseen. You never could have known. You have those thoughts where like, I had no idea when I woke up this morning that this was going to happen this afternoon. Everyone in this room has had moments and instances where 
It was completely unexpected, completely unplanned. Something happened that you had maybe no control over it, and it changed everything about your life on earth. Everyone in this room will have moments and instances that will be completely unexpected and completely unplanned, that you have nothing to do with probably, that will change everything about your life on earth. Maybe it's that late night phone call about the car accident. That late night phone call or that early morning phone call that someone that you love dearly has died. Maybe it's the diagnosis that you never saw coming. And you're reeling. Like, I didn't know that this was headed my way last week. Maybe it's the stock market crash. I trust people in 1929 did not expect what happened that resulted in people hurling themselves out of the windows on Wall Street because they'd lost everything in a moment. We even in our own lifetime have experienced something of a financial bubble bursting back in 2007, 2008. Maybe some of it could have been foreseen, but by and large, people were surprised by what happened in the financial markets and institutions in our country and across the world even. Things happen that change your circumstances on a dime. So if our circumstances change so rapidly and so unexpectedly, how could we reasonably ever hope in them? Again, thank God if it's going well right now. But also be realistic that maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, my circumstances might look very different. So your circumstances and my circumstances in this fallen world can never deliver lasting peace or lasting contentment. Those things, that lasting peace and that lasting contentment and that real hope, it must be found somewhere else. Which brings us to our third point of consideration today. We must not hope in people. We must not hope in circumstances. You know where we're going. We must hope in God alone. Put your eyes back on verse 8 for a moment. David's exhortation to the people. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. We need to be exhorted like this, right? So this is a great example of, of something that, that I, I care about even in preaching and as your pastor. We, we love, as we often say here, the, the objective declarative realities of the gospel, things that are accomplished, that are done. And there is plenty of room underneath that banner for exhortation, plenty. We need exhortation. We need to be reminded this. We need to be encouraged on the regular, spurred on and stirred up to trust in God, to pour out our hearts before him. We need to be reminded regularly that God is a refuge for us. Why? Because we are always prone, always prone to be drawn away from God and to be drawn away from hoping in him. 
We're prone to be drawn away from Him, and we are prone to be drawn away from hoping in Him. We are prone to be drawn toward hoping in circumstances, and hoping in people, and hoping in stuff. And so we need these kinds of exhortations. Don't trust this other stuff. Trust God. Don't pour your heart out over this other stuff. Pour your heart out before the Lord. He is your refuge and mine. Perhaps, perhaps, even more specifically, we would put it. We must hope in God alone. More specifically, we must hope in Christ. Verse 12b. This is where verse 12 is an important verse, even in the context of this entire psalm. That verse at the end, the second part of it, verse 12b, if you will. For you will render to a man according to his work. As we already considered, God's power and steadfast love is connected to and grounded in the fact that he's righteous. That he always does what's right. He's never done anything wrong. He's never unjust, ever. This is important. That's his true statement. When you read things like that in Scripture, take them as they are written. God will render to every man according to his work. Take these things as they're written. People who do this stuff will not inherit the kingdom of God. Full stop. Don't relativize that. One of our problems in the way that we handle the law in our current church environment is that we are so used to relativizing it That we have kitted ourselves into thinking we can do it. So this is the kind of statement that ought to just jump out at you when you read your Bible. You're reading all this wonderful stuff. like, And your heart, I pray, is stirred by these words. God is a rock. He's a refuge. He's my fortress. He's my salvation. He's my hope. People will seek my harm. Circumstances and money will fail me. God is true. But then that. He's going to render to a man according to his work. Like, really? Because I don't think I'm going to meet the test. The only answer to the whole Bible, but the only answer to this psalm, or the only answer to that verse is Jesus. To put it another way, Jesus is the only way that that Statement at the end of verse 12 doesn't contradict the entirety of Psalm 62. Psalm 62 ceases to be a comfort if you've got to stand in your own work. And if you've got to stand in your own merit. It's a death sentence. Like, thank you, David, for making me feel better about this life, knowing that I'm damned to hell. If it's not for Christ, the only way that that verse makes any sense in context. God is righteous. And so that's good for you is because God in his righteousness has made a plan to save sinners. I might put it this way. All this wonderful language of God being our rock and our hope and our refuge and our fortress and our salvation is true only in Jesus and only because of him. The way that David has written this psalm, the way that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, even including these final words here in verse 12, everything that David is writing about who God is for his people 
is grounded in the perfect work of Messiah. It requires it. It could be said this way, friends, as you think about the Old Testament and you look at the history of the nation of Israel. You look at how God has worked, right? He creates human beings, makes everything, everything's really good. He makes man uniquely in his image. He makes a covenant with Adam and Eve that they break. Then God makes another covenant with them of redemption, and that begins to unfold in Genesis chapter 3, 15, verse 15, and moving forward. And there are many different aspects of that big covenant of redemption. And as all of this is happening, you're watching this story unfold as you read Scripture. And you see over and over and over again this pattern of God acting and working and choosing and loving and being gracious and merciful and revealing and doing all these things, providing. And the people rebel. And the people grumble. And the people sin. And the people break the covenant that God has made. It's not because they were uniquely bad, just like us, right? So as you read the Old Testament and you read the story of the history of God's people, it is rightly said that the Old Testament makes Jesus obvious when he shows up. The Old Testament makes Jesus obvious when he shows up because we see throughout the history of Israel that there has to be a Savior coming. He's promised in the prophets. He's promised in the law. He's promised in the third chapter, in the least the way ours are broken down, in the third chapter of the Bible. The one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And that theme and that promise is woven throughout the Old Testament. So we see these things there, but then we also see the failure of the people that requires a perfect Savior. Because God is righteous and He's good, and He renders to a man according to His work, there had to be someone who could come as the covenant head of God's people and fulfill all righteousness in their place and atone for their sin. The Old Testament and the story of God's people makes Jesus obvious. It requires Him. Redemption and God's plan that is unfolding through Scripture requires Messiah. Let's think more about in Christ. Okay, God is all of these things for us. What is he? David tells us that he is a God of steadfast love. God in grace and steadfast love made that covenant of redemption with his people that I've already alluded to. He has determined from eternity past to make for himself a people who would know him and love him and enjoy him forever. And he is doing it. God's steadfast love as it's rendered in our, our Bibles is a, a term that refers to His covenant love. It's a special kind of covenant love that He has for His covenant people. For all those whom He loves and He has called according to His grace and according to His name, He has covenant love for them. He is unswervingly committed to his people. He is unswervingly committed to their salvation and their eternal good. So this is why we can say, along with Paul, New Testament writer, that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. This is why we can say that his love never runs out. 
That His love is never exhausted. It's never empty. The reservoir is never empty. It just goes down and down and down into the character of God. His steadfast love and His covenant love is not, therefore, conditioned upon anything in you or me. Now, sometimes stupid things are said about the unconditional love of God. That's true. I'm not here to try to lambast all that right now. But it is right to say that God's covenant love for His people is not conditioned on anything in His people. It is conditioned and grounded in Him. His character. His nature. God loves because He's love. God is gracious because He's gracious. He's merciful because He's merciful. He's good because He's good. Not because you deserve it or me. Not because there's anything lovable in me or you. It's because God is God that we have hope. David also tells us that our God is compassionate. So I see that in verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. He's compassionate. He's holy. He's awesome. Outside of Jesus, He's terrifying. And in Christ, He's compassionate. So not only does He show steadfast love and remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west, we are told by the psalmist in Psalm 103, He shows compassion on those who fear Him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so God shows compassion to those who fear him. And then these words, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Those are sweet words, man. God knows your frame. He knows your dust. He made you. He's compassionate. He is very aware, friend, brother, sister, He is very aware of your wrestlings and your struggles. He sees your tears. We're even told in Psalm 56 that he stores them in a bottle. That's the language that's used. He stores your tears in a bottle. Are they not written in your book? He knows and he cares. He's compassionate. And then we know that Jesus... God the Son who took on flesh. So God the Son existed from eternity past. About 2,000 years ago, God the Son took on human flesh and became Jesus of Nazareth. And so from now on, He is called that. Because He has a body still. It's glorified. He's in heaven. But we know that when God the Son took on human flesh and dwelt among us, He came and lived in this fallen world just like we do. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. We're told that in Scripture. He is our great high priest who was tempted and tried in every way that we are. God is compassionate. He is not just some distant despot sitting off in the heavens somewhere, just kind of looking down, you know, at what's going on, just kind of personally uninvolved. That's not our God at all. We are to cast our anxieties upon Him because He cares for us. Pour your heart out before Him. 
He's compassionate. David also tells us that our God is powerful. Verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. Power. In other words, God has the sovereignty and also the authority to do His will in all things. And by all things, I mean all things. And He has the sovereignty and authority to accomplish His plan of redemption in particular. His purposes are never thwarted. Ever. So God in His wisdom and the way that He's made the world, He made us free in one sense, right? I'm not trying to get into a conversation about the freedom or bondage of the will. That's for another time. But God made us responsible. We are responsible moral agents, right? We make decisions. And none of those decisions that we make ever thwart the purposes of God. He accomplishes all of them. How he pulls that off is beyond you and beyond me. It's way above your pay grade, right? Anybody ever tries to give you a definitive answer to that question, run as fast as you can. This power of God, peace matters in this hope conversation. I hope you see why. For you to have hope in God, ultimately, he best be powerful. Because if he's not absolutely sovereign, and if he's not absolutely authoritative, I'm not so sure that you can hope in him. So when we pray to God and pour our hearts out to God, or when we cast our anxieties upon Him, and when we hope in Him, we are praying and pleading and casting ourselves and hoping on and hoping in a God who really has the power to deliver us. So what good would it do if God were completely gracious, if He were completely loving, if He were completely kind and completely good and only wanted to do good for you. But he lacked the power to pull that off. Where's the hope in that? There isn't any. God's absolute sovereignty and authority is a piece, an essential piece of the ground of your hope and mine. So praise God that he is not only perfectly loving and compassionate, but that he is also sovereign and powerful in order to do everything that pleases him. Praise be to his name. But I want to conclude our time now, friends, as we've thought about hoping in God. I want to point us back to, to Christ specifically for just a moment. The, I called the sermon Hope Has a Name, and it does. And that name is Jesus. Jesus really is like completely the ground of your hope and mine. Like really. I'm not trying to be trite or cliche right now. He will never leave us. He's told us that. He is our defender. He's our shepherd, right? He guides us. His rod and his staff, right? His rod, he protects us. His staff, he guides us. He has secured and purchased our forgiveness forever. That transaction is finished. 
He suffered and He bled and He died in your place and mine if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Him. He is our refuge and our fortress. From circumstantial trials, true, like there's comfort. I can take refuge in Christ when I'm suffering. That's true. But also, He is your refuge and my refuge from our sin and from the righteous wrath of God we deserve. We just sung about that even this morning before the throne of God above, right? That God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me, but also my life is hid with Christ on high, right? I am hidden in that sense in Him. Rock of ages, right? Cleft from me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Who's that about? It's about Christ. The cleft in the rock where we can hide and are shielded from the wrath of God. Jesus is our righteousness. We've talked about this so much. But it can't be said enough. He came to fulfill all righteousness. That's why He lived a life for 33 years on earth. He didn't just show up on Good Friday. He had to fulfill all righteousness in the place of His people so that when God will render to a man according to His work, Christ's work could stand in our place. As has been said by theologians greater than me, you will be saved by works, just not yours. You will be saved by the imputation of the perfect work of Jesus and also His atoning work. And then in Him, you too will be raised just as He was. Everything about your salvation has everything to do with being united to Christ and being in Him. He is our rock. He's the solid rock that we're going to sing about in just a moment. He is the firm foundation on which we stand and everything else really is sinking sand. He is our freedom. Free from bondage to sin. In Christ we are. We've been set free from the power of sin. The presence of sin still remains. That's true. The presence of sin still remains. But we have been set free from the power of sin. We have also been set free from bondage under the law. The law is good, but it used to have us enslaved because we could not keep it and were damned by it. Jesus has set us free. He has set us free to obey the law in joy and love and gratitude. Jesus has secured our future. Our future is certain in Him. That's why you can hope in Him. Circumstances may change. Christ never does. Circumstances may change. Money may come and go. People may hurt you. Jesus never will. And His accomplished work is done. His Spirit is in us now. And His Spirit in us causes us to long to follow Him. His Spirit in us changes us and conforms us into His likeness. Jesus is our salvation. Not just today, but tomorrow and forever. You will be finally saved because you are in Christ now. So you can sit here today and know that you know that you know that it will go well for you before the throne of God because of Christ. I am in Him and I know that because I am in Him, I am justified, I am being sanctified, I will be glorified. Write it down, take it to the bank. Jesus is also our joy. We have joy in knowing Him now. We have joy in loving Him now. We have joy in being loved by Him now. And 
we will have joy inexpressible forever with him as we get to behold his glory forever and ever and forever after that. And then finally, Christ is our glory. Through him, we are told that we will one day shine like the sun in the kingdom of our heavenly father. He's like you, you will be glorious one day. And that's not to boast about you. That's to boast about Christ and about God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit, who have made you that way. Through Jesus, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your heavenly father. The apostle Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Glory's coming. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Smoke. Talking about us. And that's not, again, that's not to make anything about you. That's about Christ because it's all accomplished by him, through him, for him. We will boast in Jesus forever. Because he has done it. To him be the glory. So brothers and sisters, I I pray that it's clear. That God is trustworthy. And that Christ can be hoped in. Because those who hope in him will never be disappointed. Circumstances will fail you. People will fail you. But those who hope in Christ will never be put to shame. Praise be to God that that's true. Let's pray. Our Father, I suppose it's appropriate that so many times when we land the the plane of these sermons here at CBC that uh, what flows out of my heart and I trust other people's hearts is gratitude and thanksgiving and love to you for what you've done for us in your son. We pray that you would fill us with love for you, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray that you would fill us with love for one another. And we pray, God, that you would take these wonderful, beautiful words of Psalm 62 and drive them deep into our heart. Drive them deep into our minds. We pray that we would recall them in times of suffering and difficulty and trial. That we would be reminded by your spirit that you are our rock and our fortress. You are our salvation and our hope. And that because of that, because of you, we cannot and will not be greatly shaken. We confess our sin to you. In particular, we confess to you that we often doubt these things. We often forget that these things are true. May we exhort one another, as David even exhorted us in our text today, to trust in you, to hope in you, to pour our hearts out before you because you are a refuge for us. So we pray for your help in all of these things, and we pray that you would continue to be with us as we worship you in coming to the table. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.